0: Well, bless the Lord for our babies, our children. Amen. 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 Amen out of the mouths of babes. We give God honor and glory for them. Um, We'll also uh, remember Sister Regina in our prayers this morning. Uh, She struggled last night with Golden State's defeat, and uh, we want to pray for her and all those who are grieving Golden State's defeat last night. Amen. The Lord knows how to humble you. Brother Steph had a bad night last night. I should have invited him to church this morning, see the Lord, come to the altar, get that three-pointer restored. Uh, but it is it is good. Hey, look, 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 our family's moving out here. Uh, we, we ain't conflicted on our basketball loyalties. It's a good time to jump on the Golden State bandwagon, and we can jump on it, and we're going to ride it till the wheels fall off, all right? Don't act like I'm the only one who jumped on the bandwagon. Come on now. Some of y'all jumped on that bagging too. I ain't heard anything about Golden State till Steph Curry. But anyways, we haven't made up our mind about our football allegiances. Uh, So here's what I'm going to do. Write this down. My direct email address. It don't go to my assistant. Don't go to nobody else. Comes directly to me. My direct email address is Pastor Brian with a Y. Or if you're ordinary, spell it with an I and I won't get it. But anyways, uh, Pastor Brian with a Y. Um, and we're gonna do a contest here. Whoever gives me the most endorsements for the Raiders, I'll be a Raiders team. If I, get, if I get more for the 49ers, then we'll be 49ers, all right? But whoever I get the most emails from, for what crew? No, not the Cowboys. We're gonna offer a time for salvation. And if you're a Cowboys fed, you need to be right here at the altar. Lord have mercy. Cowboys will not be in the kingdom of God. Uh, um, <laughs> I'm just, we just lost a couple of But anyways, uh, uh, so we'll just do it that way. Uh, Raiders or 49ers, and just email me directly. And whoever sends the most endorsements for their team, that's who we'll, we'll become. So uh, definitely, definitely hoping towards that. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please meet me in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Beginning in verse twenty-four, this is the beginning of Holy Week. Uh, that week, where Jesus uh, walks into Jerusalem, um, it is a week filled with all kinds of things: the cleansing of the temple, the sacrament of communion, Good Friday. Hopefully, you'll be able to make it for our Good Friday service. We have a whole lot going on. You'll get some more details on that. Start about seven a.m., but the service itself will begin at noon this coming Friday. I'll be teaching and preaching at that service. We'll give a quick word, about 20 minutes or so. We will take communion together and we will also spend some time worshiping. We'll have you out around 45 minutes so you can get back to work, but hopefully you will be able to take part in that Good Friday service right here at noon. My whole family will be there. And then, of course, the hallmark of not just the Christian calendar, but World History's calendar is Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Next Sunday, we will back. We'll be right back here worshiping and praising and celebrating God. Uh, I am so excited to be here with you, with my family. We'll do a reception afterwards. You'll be able to meet my wife uh, with her fine self. Lord have mercy. And uh, my three children as well, Quentin, Miles, and Jaden, and uh, excited for that. But we're not the focal point. Jesus is. And we're excited to celebrate the risen and resurrected Savior. So hopefully you're making plans to come and be a part of that and then bring some family members as well Matthew chapter 16 we've been in a series called first I began this series two weeks ago, my first official Sunday here as pastor with just this thought. I don't know you all. In fact, one of my frustrating points right now, so much of pastoral ministry. I'd gotten to a point in Memphis Tennessee, where I pastored for 12 years, where I was able to just um, write sermons and thinking of people's needs as I was able to write them. That's what I love about pastoral ministry. Pastoral preaching is knowing the sheep. And knowing what the sheep need. Well, I don't know you all that well, and you don't know me that well. But for most of us in this room, we've got one thing in common, and that's Jesus. So I said, let's start there. So we've been in a series called First Things First. Week one, we looked at Jesus above ministry, Jesus above church. Jesus wants to be first. God is called a jealous God. Just like I ain't down with sharing my wife with another man, God ain't down with sharing you with anyone or anything else else. He wants to be first. He wants to be only. And we learned that good things can actually become bad things when they become ultimate things. That when anything takes the place of Jesus Christ, we have just committed the sin of idolatry. Last week, we talked about Jesus above rules. Even rules found in the Bible. That when God saved you, he saved you by God's grace. And that what gets you into the kingdom, grace, is what keeps you in the kingdom after you've gotten into it, grace. We learned last week that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And we learned also that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. This is not to say that not a place for rules or commandments. There is Philippians chapter two, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you, both will and to do according to his good pleasure. One of my favorite Christian authors who just died recently, Dallas Willard said this, God is not opposed to effort. He is opposed to earning So that we don't work for approval, we work from approval. That we work from grateful hearts, that God, you've been so good, I want to pray, I want to give, I want to share my faith. We do that out of a sense, not of obligation, but out of a sense of joy. Brother Arshel took me to a place the other day, changed my life, called The Counter. Changed my life. Changed my life. I've never had a turkey burger like that before. I fell in love. I came back home and I evangelized on behalf of the counter. I told my wife about the counter. Now watch this. It's a truism of life. Whatever gives you joy, you talk about. It's just truth. Whatever gives you joy, you talk about. So that evangelism, talking about Jesus, shouldn't be seen as something we do out of obligation or duty. If Jesus is your joy, you talk about him. You, you, just, you just talk about him. So that there is a place for rules in the Christian life, but that, those rules must never take the place of Jesus. When rules usurp the authority of a relationship with Jesus, we've just now fallen into something called legalism. And last week we put a full court press on legalism. Now, this week, I want to come after something, and I want to come after it in a counterintuitive way. I want to talk about Jesus above happiness. I'm not going where you think I'm going, but I want to talk about Jesus above Happiness. There's a syndrome out there called Prader-Willi syndrome. I'm not speaking in tongues, I promise you it exists. There's a syndrome out there called Prader-Willi syndrome. It is a physical syndrome that impacts and affects a handful of people annually. Prader-Willi syndrome Prater-Willi syndrome is an odd syndrome. Because a person afflicted with Prater-Willi syndrome, they never get full. They never get satisfied. A person with Prater-Willi syndrome can eat and eat and eat and eat and never leave the table fulfilled. It is a physical syndrome where the person never gets satisfied. And the danger of that syndrome is that they can literally eat themselves into obesity in an early grave. That the inability to get fulfilled causes irreparable damage and harm to the body. That these people, in fact, uh, CNN in in their article, they profile a 12-year-old girl in Denmark who's afflicted with Prater Willis. Her parents literally have to chain the refrigerator. I'm going, I I think I got two teenage boys. I I need to take them to the doctor because I think we got the same problem up in my house. But they have to chain the refrigerator. Why? Because without the ability to get fulfilled or satisfied, you end up destroying yourselves. Now, while Praetor Will syndrome might impact a handful of people physically annually, there's what I would also call, you got it, spiritual Praetor Will syndrome. Spiritual Praetor Will syndrome impacts billions of people globally. It is is a picture of a person who is trying to find fulfillment independent of Jesus Christ. And so they sit at the buffet of this world and they eat and eat and eat. And yet they realize nothing in this life satisfies. So they eat at the table of materialism. They eat at the table of hedonism. They eat at the table of moralism. They eat at the table of their own sexuality and they think if I make certain sexual choices then I'll find fulfillment there. And they come up empty every single time. Because what they failed to realize is a wonderful statement that the great Blaise Pascal, the 17th century French philosopher, bequeathed to us when he said, Each of us was created with a God-sized hole in our soul that only God can fulfill. Amen. Nothing in this life will satisfy. And yet... The great anomaly of life is, even for people in the church having known that truth, many of us right now, under the sound of my voice, we are still trying to negotiate fulfillment on our own terms, independent of Jesus Christ. There's a great book out there called Good Faith. It's written by some Christian researchers and cultural anthropologists, Dave Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons. Some of us know those names. They wrote a landmark book several years ago called UnChristian. In this book, they do a bunch of statistical analysis and research. One of the things they research is, is looking for fulfillment, the quest for fulfillment, not just among people out there in the world, but also among people in the church. And here's what they said. Look at these statistics with me on the screen. And talking about fulfillment, in life, they said 91% of people in our culture, watch this, and 76% of practicing Christians say to find yourself, look within yourself. Number two, they came to this conclusion in their data that 86% of the people in the culture, 72% of practicing Christians say to be fulfilled in life, pursue the things you desire most. Third, 84% of people in the culture, 66% of practicing Christians say, Enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. Finally, 79% of people in the culture, 61% of people who would call themselves practicing Christians say, People can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. Houston, we've got a problem. I'm not just talking about people who don't know Jesus. I am talking about people even inside the church of Jesus Christ who are trying to find fulfillment in life independent of Jesus. And one of the things this research points out is it's not just we're trying to find fulfillment, but we're also trying to find happiness. That you and I in Western culture, I just want to turn on the lights and let us see the roaches in our own soul. That you in life, you and I in this life, in 2016, we are influenced by what I would call this happiness ethic. It colors everything. Go ahead and put the picture of uh, of Brother Pharrell on the screen here. Brother Pharrell had this monster hit. Some of us can remember it not too long. Mega hit. This idea of this song, Happy. Clap along if you feel like a room... Y- 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 oh, y'all spiritual? Y'all don't... All of a sudden, you don't know that song, right? Uh, y'all don't... Oh, okay, thanks, praise team. Thanks, Bless you, praise team. But I think part of the reason why that song is such a monster hit... It's because he put his finger on the pulse of what's going on in so many of our souls, this longing to be happy, this longing to find fulfillment. Recently, they interviewed some Chinese parents, and uh, they asked these Chinese parents, if there's one word that you want to describe your child, what word would that be? And, And overwhelmingly, these Chinese parents said, successful. We long for our kids to find success. They then ask American parents if there's one word that you would long for your kids to experience, what would it be? Our word? Happy. Happy. It colors everything, it colors the way that we parent. I mean, we got, we got four year old soccer leagues where everybody gets a trophy. That's right. <laughs> your child could be on a team that is oh and forever. Your child could be the worst team on could be the worst player on that team that's Owen forever. But your child who never got off the bench on the worst team is still gonna get a trophy. Why? Because God forbid if little Johnny ain't happy. That's what we want. It's how we parent. So we go hard after bullies. I mean you, you can't even say anything negative on a social media platform, and our parents just rush in. Now I had that kind of parent. I grew up in a crazy household where my father actually said that uh, a bully is God's means of sanctification in my life. <laughs> I remember one time my dad bought me this fitted cap. He, he went away on a trip. I think he actually came to San Francisco, bought me this San Francisco Giants fitted cap, and I wore it to school the next day and Big Bad Fred just took it off my hat, uh, took it off my head and just started wearing my hat and I came home and dad said, "Where's my hat?" I said, "Well, this guy, Big Fred took it off my head." He says, are you mean to tell me the hat that I went across country to go get for you, you let somebody just take off my, off your head? He said, no, 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 I'm not even meeting with the principal. About it. You don't come home tomorrow without my hat. <laughs> he didn't call no meeting with the principal. He didn't do any of that. You know, death, I don't care how you get it. If you got to fight, then you got to fight. Now, my dad's a preacher, so I don't know where he got that from. But my father refused to parent the happiness ethic. One of the things sociologists talk about is the softening of this next generation. They're soft. They're not resilient. Why? Because they've got something that sociologists call helicopter parents who overprotect. Now we've got these passive 20-something, 30-something-year-old people still sitting on mama and daddy's sofa playing video games all day, no direction in life, and their parents are letting this nonsense go on. Now, if I come by your house, you ain't got to let me in. Just say, out somebody, because we are huddling the next generation. And in our quest to make our kids happy, we are not making them strong and resilient. Latest research tells us that two of the most depressed, two of the industries with the highest rates of depression are the finance industry and the medical industry. That's interesting. These are some of the highest paid industries. Why is that? They speculate because so many people get into those industries, not out of a sense of calling, but they go into those industries thinking that if I make all this money, I'll be happy. And then they realize no amount of money can give you lasting happiness. And so they get depressed. Now, it might shock you for me to say these words to you, and that is one of the things we're going to discover in our text is Jesus is not anti-happiness. Let me give that to you again. Jesus is not against you and I being happy. In fact, Jesus, the text actually tells us, is for our happiness. I want you to look back at it. I want you to look at verse 25. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, as Matthew is writing this text, he's writing in a language called Greek, and the Greek word for find literally means to be happy. It literally means exuberance. It literally means to be joyful. Jesus says, when you put me first in your life, you will bump into happiness along the way. God not anti our happiness. Now, some of us are bristling at that because some of us look at God as if he is the obligatory salad that we have to eat or as if he is the obligatory plate of broccoli or asparagus we have to eat. He's good for us. We just don't enjoy it. Just this week, we're sitting at the dinner table in our home in New York City and my wife had cooked chicken and a plate of uh, asparagus and my 11-year-old gets the asparagus. and mm, mm, mm. Asparagus is the bomb. And his brothers are like, are you kidding me? What 11-year-old says, asparagus is the bomb. And what they're getting at is, asparagus is just a necessary evil that we put up with. We know it's good for us. We just don't enjoy it. And tragically, that's how so many people look at God in Jesus. They extract any sense of enjoyment. They just look at God as someone who is good for them, but someone in whom they can never be happy with. This is not what the scriptures teach. Psalm chapter 1. It begins by saying. Blessed is the man who does not counsel the wicked. Or does not stand in the way of sinners. Or does not sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law does he meditate day and night. The word blessed literally means to be happy. This man is walking a happy life. I could take you to Matthew chapter 5. Just praying this in my own life this morning. The Beatitudes when Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The word blessed also means happy. Jesus is for our happiness, but here's where it bumps against the world. The world says, find happiness in yourself, find happiness on your own terms. Jesus says, seek me first, subjugate your life to me, and along the way you'll find happiness. So that happiness in the Bible is not front and center, Jesus is. All of us have been sick, all of us have been sick, and when that happens, I talked to uh, one of the mothers of the church, she was coming in today, she says, Pastor, don't touch me, I started to get offended, what do you mean by that, I'm just trying to say good morning, hug you, she says, I'm sick. And when we're sick, typically what we'll do, uh, we, we get really sick, we'll, we'll call the doctor and she'll prescribe to us some medication, now we take that medication, that medication addresses a primary thing. But if you read the label, you'll see that while it addresses a primary thing, you could experience some secondary things called side effects. Now, these side effects aren't primary. But what it's saying is, along the way, this medication is going to deal with your primary thing of congestion. But along the way, you could experience the side effect of drowsiness. Jesus says, you've got a sick soul. And I'm prescribing to you me. Me. But when follow me, there is a side effect, not that you could get, but what you would get. And that side effect is happiness. So that make me first. And along the way, you'll find peace. Now, now, wait a minute, Brian. I thought happiness was based on happenings. Are you telling me I should always be happy even though I've got circumstances that tell me I should be down? Absolutely. That's what I'm telling you. It's what the Bible calls joy. Joy is the unique ability to emote and express happiness even when everything around you says you should be down. And I'm here to tell you as long as there's Jesus, there should always, always be joy. I'm African American. And if you want to look for an example of that, look no further than our forefathers, the slaves. Here are our forefathers, shackled, oppressed, Branded, raped, and yet they are singing Negro spirituals, singing praises to Zion in the midst of being treated as less than human. What made the slaves sing? Frederick Douglass, that great abolitionist, said they didn't sing because of their circumstances. They sang because they believed in someone greater than their circumstances. They believed in God. And as long as there's God, there's a reason for joy. So that even in cancer, Brother Art, there's joy. Even in the midst of a pink slip, there should be joy. Even in the midst of turmoil and all hell out in my life, there should be joy. Jesus says, if you make me first, you'll get happiness along the way. Second thing I want you to see from our text is, is that not only uh, is Jesus for our happiness, but the second thing I want you to see in our text is, is that happiness must be rooted in Jesus, not in this world. You and I live in a culture that primarily says that you won't be fulfilled unless you have more of something. In fact, that's the basic message of of commercials. I sat my boys down the other day, and I said, I just want you to, let's watch TV together. I want you to get the worldview that is coming your way. And we're watching commercials, and I told them, listen, commercials are hardwiring you to get you to covet. The message to all commercials is you are not satisfied and you can be satisfied if you bought our product. Buy our diet pill. Lose amount of weight. You'll be satisfied. Buy this car. You'll be satisfied. Uh, Get into this uh, uh, dating website. You'll be satisfied. This is the message of our culture. Jesus deals with this in our text. He says in verse 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Jesus ups the ante. He says, listen, here's the deal. Say you've got everything. You're living in the perfect zip code. You've got best cars. You've you've got all the the degrees you want. You've got that uh, wonderful spouse. You've got everything you want. But he says, here's the problem. The problem is You are exchanging the eternal For the temporal Imagine I came to you in 1905 Let's say And I said look man I've got an investment opportunity for you. It is a doozy of an opportunity. I'm just telling you, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It's 1905. We're building this ship. They're calling it the Unsinkable Ship. It's going to be made out of the best material. It's going to be uh, commandeered by the best staff. It's going to have the finest china, the best service, the best food. And I just paint this picture, and you get really excited, really excited, and thinking about investing. And you're saying, okay, cool, I'm going to sign, and I give you the papers. And right before you sign, you ask the question, now, what's the name of this ship? And I tell you, this ship is the Titanic. Chances are you ain't going to invest because you know that ship is not going to last. You would be a fool for investing in something that's going to end up at the bottom of an ocean. Jesus is likewise saying this world is the Titanic. We're going to die one day. I'm going to die one day. My funeral may last an hour. My wife may cry. You know, she'll be thinking, I'm about to cash this life insurance check. Um, I done gave her specific instructions. You better not spend that on the next dude. That's for you and my kids. I will come up out this bad boy. One day I will be very dead and according to the writer of Hebrews he says it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. I don't care how many salads you eat. I don't care how many miles you jog. There is coming a day when you will be very dead and then you will behold your maker face to face. And what are you going to say? Look at my 26 inch rims. What are you going to say? When you're flatlining, I promise you, you're not going to say, should have bought that car, not that car. Jesus says, if you're trying to find happiness in the stuff of this life, this life is a Titanic. There's coming a moment when God will say, give me back my breath. I'm with my friend, Matt Chandler, not, not too long ago, a couple years ago. He's got brain cancer. Pastor is about 20,000 people in Dallas, Texas. And we're riding through the streets of Texas. He's got brain cancer, man. And uh, I'm asking him, how's he doing? He, and he looks at me and he says, I, I'll, I'll never forget what he said. Here's this guy, brain cancer. Pastor, 20,000. He says, we're all terminal. I just happen to know more details. Jesus says, are you kidding me? What profits someone to gain the whole world and lose your soul? You are putting all this attention into your body, but you are neglecting what matters most your soul. Jesus says, I want you to be happy. I am for it. But not happiness on your terms. On mine. Seek me first. My righteousness. Matthew 6. All these things will be added unto you. But those things are secondary. They're not primary. So what's the pathway to happiness? Let's go home on this one. You want to be happy? Here's Dr. Jesus. He gives a prescription. Do these three things. You will find happiness along the way. Verse 24. Jesus told his disciples, as we close, if would come to him, let, it, let if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. He prescribes for us three things: one, I want you to deny yourself; two, take up your cross; three, follow me. All three of these are what we would call in Greek construction imperatives. The idea of an imperative is a command. Jesus is saying, I am commanding you. I ain't giving you tweetable advice. I'm not suggesting. I'm not. This isn't a fortune cookie for you to pause and contemplate over. I am commanding you. Do these three things, you will find happiness. Number one, deny yourself. The idea of the word deny, it literally means to renounce and to cut off all ties with, all affiliations with. This is actually, conceptually, what Peter does to Jesus when he denies him. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. In this context, Jesus is not asking us to deny him, of course. He's asking us to deny ourselves. William Barclay Scholar says this about denial. Look at it with me. To deny oneself means in every moment of life to say no to self and yes to God. To deny oneself means finally, once and for all, to dethrone self and to enthrone God. To deny oneself means to obliterate self as the dominant principle of life and to make God the ruling principle, more the ruling passion of life. The life of constant self-denial is the life of constant assent to God. This is counterintuitive to what we believe. The world says, be fulfilled, and the way to be fulfilled is to say yes to everything, to gorge yourself at the table of self-indulgence. Yes, yes, yes. Jesus actually turns this on his head and says, no, the pathway to happiness comes through denial, which fundamentally says, no. Brian, I tell myself, no. Now, we're in a season of Lent. This is all about Denial. This is the high point here, Holy Week, and we're coming down the finish line. And my wife has already eyed that milkshake she wants to get because she gave up sweets. She's denying herself. Why are we doing this? Because that's what this time of year is about. Jesus Christ, praise God, he said no to himself. When he could have called at any moment a legion of angels and gotten off that cross, thank God he said no. Had he not denied himself, we would be headed for an eternity in hell. But we have eternal life because of the denial of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And to follow him likewise means that we say no. And that's what Lent is about. It is finding those things that are essential to us, finding those things that we enjoy, and saying no. No matter how silly it may be. Now... couple years ago, we're sitting down with our family and we're, we usually do this every Lent season where we just look and say, well, what are we giving up? What are we giving up? We go around the table and, um, and my son, Miles, he was about seven or eight at the time. Miles goes this year for Lent. I've been praying about it, dad. I'm going to give up lucky charms. And we all said, amen, brother. Amen. That is a sacrifice for you. Now, you don't get this, but but my son loves Lucky Charms. He loves it so much that at age six, he woke up one morning and was really ticked off. He's trying to hurry up and get to school, and there's no Lucky Charms. And he did a poll. He did a survey who ate the last bit of his Lucky Charms, and he discovered his younger brother, Jaden, ate the last bit of his Lucky Charms. I'll never forget it. Miles, in a very calm, cold-blooded way. Miles, Miles is just that cold-blooded brother. He looked at his younger brother and says, when I come home from school, I'm punching you in your face. I said, whoa, 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 over a box of Lucky Charms? No, 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 this is not what we're about in this household. And we have a quick devotion on how to, you know, be kind to your enemies and so on and so forth. But, you know, Miles, he prayed the prayer, you know, agreed and went off to school. I forgot about it. Picked the boy up. He came home, took off his coat, hung it up on the coat rack and boom, right in his brother's face. Over some Lucky Charms. So a couple years later, when Miles says, I'm giving up lucky charms, we said, amen, brother, that is a sacrifice. The way in which we model denial in our life is something called fasting. Jesus expects us to regularly fast. That's why in Matthew chapter six, he says, when you fast, when you fast, if you fast, when you fast. that fasting is one of those things where we take something that we really enjoy, find pleasure in, something that is even essential as food, and we deny ourselves. And it is through that act of denial that we are saying, Jesus, you mean so much more to me that I am going to give up something that I need to tell you, you are a greater need than that lesser need. Secondly, Jesus says, don't just deny yourself, but take up your cross. Crosses are very popular today. We use them as little pieces of jewelry that adorn a necklace. We get crosses tattooed on our wrists and our back and on other parts of our body. They're really popular. We talk about crosses as a bad day at work. Bill collectors calling the house a rough season. But that is not how they heard cross back then. When Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up their cross. They didn't think jewelry. They didn't think a bad day at work. They didn't build collectors calling the house. They, They thought dying the most shameful kind of death that you could die. Lee Strobel in his book, The Case for Christ, he talks about this idea of crucifixion. In fact, do you know where we get the word excruciating from? It comes from the Latin excruciatus. "Cruciatas" means cross. Ex means out of. The word excruciating literally means out of the cross. When they were looking for a word that would be the emblem of pain and suffering to the cross. And in this book, The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel interviews a medical doctor and he says... That when a person was crucified, long rivets weren't nailed through what we would call in America this part of the hand. But the Romans also included the wrist part of the hand. It would be nailed through those two bones. And going through those two bones, it would strike a nerve causing the fingers to draw up like this. Long rivets were nailed in between the feet. And centurions would drop this person to a post. And upon being dropped into a post, all of their joints would become dislocated. And their lungs would fill up with mucus. And they'd have to push up. To get air. Observers of ancient crucifixion all say that the prevailing sound that you heard from people being crucified was their belabored breathings. Did you know the average length of time it took a person by the death of crucifixion wasn't two or three minutes. It wasn't two or three hours. but the average length of time it took a person to die. the death of crucifixion was two or three days. But if you had a nice centurion, he would take his club and break your leg so you could no longer push up to get air, thus expediting the process. That, my friend, is how much Jesus loved you. He says, you cannot follow me unless you're willing to die. It is counterintuitive. With no death. There is no sustained happiness. The truth of this is the revelation that I am most alive when I am most dead. My marriage is alive when I'm most dead. Who I am, I'm most alive when I'm most dead. Die to yourself, friends, and you will find happiness. Jesus, you want to be happy? Deny yourself, not just one time, deny yourself daily. Paul says to the Galatians or to the Corinthians, I die daily. Take up your cross. I love it. He ends by saying, you want to be happy? Follow me. I'm so glad this text ends on this note because so far it's pretty morbid deny die but now he gives us something positive to do follow the Christian life is both a giving up and a pursuit it is both a putting off and a putting on to follow Jesus yes does mean I need to give up some things but what I get in exchange is the pursuit of Jesus it is following him Jesus says Follow me. Now, if you read Matthew, you understand Matthew loves this word follow. He uses it all throughout the gospel. Here it is. Write this down. The idea of the word follow, it simply means to reorder and reorient yourself around someone greater. Jesus says, I am calling you to set aside your own agenda, to set aside your own personal aspirations and to subjugate and to exchange those things for me. And I promise you what you will get is far greater than you could ever have dreamed. You get me. Follow me. This is what Peter and James and John did. Jesus showed up one day and said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they said yes to Jesus. And they lived a legacy we are still talking about because they reordered their life around Jesus Christ. This is what Matthew did in Matthew chapter nine. He was a tax collector. And Jesus simply said two words, follow me. And Matthew left all and followed him. And in just a few moments, we'll give that same call to you. That you would follow him. Growing up, man, we, I didn't grow up. I was growing up when video games were just starting to come onto the scenes. So we had Pong and, and Atari. But for the most part, for entertainment, we actually went outside and talked to people. And we, we just did. And, and we, would, we would go outside. We played a lot of different games. One of the games we played was a game called Simon Says. Anybody ever played that game growing up? Simon Says. Now now the key to Simon says to being successful at it twofold. Number one, if you're gonna do good in Simon says, you gotta listen carefully. There'll be a lot of commands coming at you, but you only do the ones prefaced by those two words, Simon says. If they told you to do anything else, and it wasn't prefaced by Simon Says, you didn't do it. But if it began with Simon Says, you listened carefully, and you did. And secondly, you did it with radical obedience, even if doing it made you look foolish to others. So they may say, Simon Says, jumping down on one leg, but if Simon said it, you did it. They may say, Simon says, jump up and down on one leg and bark like a dog. But if Simon says it, you did it. Likewise, when Jesus says, follow me, he is calling us to enter into a lifetime game. Jesus says... And to be a part of Jesus says and to do well must mean that we listen carefully, not to the messages of our culture, but to the messages of our Christ. And we do it with radical obedience, even willing to look like a fool to the world, all because Jesus says. Jesus says, give generously. So we give generously because Jesus says. Jesus says, be celibate. And we are celibate because Jesus says says and jesus says stop looking to the world to fulfill you and look to me alone so that's what we do because jesus says as the worship team comes friends jesus says i offer you happiness i want you to be But I don't offer you happiness as your primary mission in life. I only offer it to you as a side effect when you relate yourself and give yourself to following me. Someone in this house today needs to say yes to Jesus. And you need to say yes to Jesus first. And the reason why you should say yes to Jesus is because Jesus in eternity time past. When Adam and Eve were looking for a fig leaf to hide under, he saw you and he ordered your steps. And he has allowed you to be in this place today and to hear this message so that you would stop doing life on your own terms and that you would come follow him. Jesus loved you so much that he stretched out his arms wide, got across, and died for you. Jesus loves you so much that he was mocked, spit upon, had his beard plucked out, was run through with a sword so that you would find life, so that you would run into his arms. So, in just a few moments, I'm, I'm going to make a call for anyone here today, and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. In just a few moments, I'm going to invite you to come. But I also want to make a second appeal for those of us who say, yes, we do know Jesus. But, Pastor, I just got to tell you, man, I've, I've been trying to find fulfillment in that Facebook affair. I've been trying to find fulfillment in material possessions trying to find happiness in my spouse. I've been trying to find happiness in my job. Jesus says no, 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 those things are secondary. Would you stop doing life on your own terms? Would you relinquish control of your life? Deny yourself daily, take up your cross and follow him. I'm going to give an invitation skidly, not just for salvation but an invitation as a call to discipleship. Some of you guys are saying, I I want to take my relationship with Jesus to another notch. We've got some prayer people. We want to pray over you. We want to lay hands on you. It's time for the church to stop playing church. We have reduced Christianity. We have reduced Christianity to pretty much me doing what I want to do. I'll sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on top to be acceptable, but not too much to be made uncomfortable. Jesus says, would you come and follow me? Third call, there's someone here today. Maybe you're here and you're going, I don't have a church home. I'd love to be your pastor. We'd love to be your community. We'd love to be your friends. We'd love to be around you, lock arms with you in this journey of discipleship. We want to make that available to you. So Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray a big prayer today. We ask that no one would leave here without saying yes to you. We ask, Lord God, that your spirit would now walk the aisles, would walk the rows. And that you, Lord Jesus, would lovingly woo and draw unto yourself. You, Lord God, would save someone. We not only ask that, but we pray for those who would say, yes, I am a follower of you. But I just got to be honest. I've been looking for happiness on my own terms. And I've contracted spiritual praetor will I syndrome. I'm not satisfied. I'm not fulfilled. I want satisfaction in my life. I want to take this call to discipleship seriously. Lord Jesus, would you draw people to yourself? Would you up the ante today? And finally, we pray, add to your church. We do it in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen.